Well, good morning and welcome once again to Grace Community Church. I don't know that we've ever had as many first-timers at church as we do today, or either that or you have a very forgettable face, one of the two. I, I don't know what it is. Uh, not really. That's very ugly. I didn't mean it. Didn't mean for it to sound like it came out, but that is often the case, as my wife tells me. No, no, no. Um, tell you what, in fact... We were going to institute this in a few weeks when we get everything all set up. Just outside of uh, these doors, to the left, there is a foyer off of the foyer. It's the foyer for the office. And after the service, if you're here for the first time and you'd like to just know a little bit more about Grace, uh, I will be back there with Allison, my wife, some of the elders. Their wives will be back there. We would love to meet you and just tell you a little bit about uh, Grace Community Church. Um, Brian, who shared a while ago about being um, or finding not only Grace Community Church, but finding community in a home group, is just as much a blessing to us as we are to him. And that's the way it's designed to be. And if this is the place the Lord uh, leads you to settle, we are very excited about that. And just excited about getting to know you. And of course, we don't expect that to happen after the first day. You, you may have some questions, and so we'd be happy to meet you. And, and um, uh, talk to you a little bit. Well, I want to ask you this morning, uh, if you've ever been lost, you ever, as a child, you ever remember getting separated from your parents? You just lost them, or, or maybe you would say, actually, they lost you. I mean, they should have been paying better attention to you, but they let you go, and here you are, and you're looking around, you have no idea where you are. Or, or maybe you've, you've taken a wrong turn, on a street that you wish you hadn't turned on. I did that in Detroit one time. And Los Angeles twice. I've done, I've done that twice. And, and, and thought, uh, you know, I haven't gone far enough to be lost. I've got sense enough to turn this car around quickly. If you have, um, I, I would imagine, I've been lost a few times, but nothing compared to some of the hair-raising stories that, that some of you uh, could tell us. It, it's a terrible, hopeless feeling when you realize that you are utterly lost, you know, that, that happens in different ways. And Brian sort of hinted about how that happens. Um, I promise you that is not me making that sound. Um, all right. Jeremy is coming up. It's, this is Jeremy. Uh, he is going to take care of this sound. I was thinking maybe I shouldn't have eaten that extra piece of toast for breakfast or something, but... Um, well, Brian gave sort of a, just sort of a taste of what it, uh, of another type of lostness and loneliness is like when you feel sort of lost, when you're, when, when you're just, you're out of place, you're not where you're supposed to be. Well, this morning we're going to talk about lost people. We are, in fact, going to think about what it means for those of us who are followers of, of Jesus Christ to love lost people and I'm not talking about having a special place in your heart you know at the mall in in, in mid-December when you see a, a child who's who's all of a sudden lost parents or adults looking confused like you know am I in the right place um I, I we're going to be focusing this morning on those whose spiritual condition is that of, of being lost or or being separated from God we, we love to put people into categories don't we 
African-American, Caucasian, Asian, modern, postmodern, Neanderthal, old school, hipster, intelligent, knowledge challenged, athletic, uncoordinated, superstar, paparazzi, and so on and on we could go. We, we just have a category for everybody. But God looks at people in one of two ways. Lost and found. Or lost and saved. Now, granted, there are other ways that Scripture describes people in those two categories or conditions, we might say, such as sinner and saint, rejected and accepted, etc. In our day of political correctness, which, which is, by the way, another set, subset of one of those categories, but in our day of political correctness and in our desire not to offend, we, 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 we like to find more palatable ways of describing those who don't know Jesus, such as seekers or unchurched or even pre-conversion. Pre-conversion, that's funny. I mean, apparently we know more than the Lord in some cases. But God says that people who don't belong to Jesus are lost. Some of his other words for the lost, and these are difficult, are wicked, condemned, enemies of God. Now that doesn't mean that God hates lost, lost people. He loves lost people. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost his mission was to come and to seek and to save those who were lost. So what exactly is the reason for this division between people who are saved and who are lost or, or who are lost and who are, are, are now found? Well, if one has repented of his sins he has, and, and, and has placed his trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for his sins, he is no longer lost, but he is found. Or saved. Everyone else is lost. Jesus, you're, you're found. Not Jesus, you're lost. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now if we belong to Jesus, and if we love him, we are going to want everybody who is lost to know how to be found. Doesn't your heart just go out when you see this child who's just frantically looking around and you say, sweetheart, here, let me help you. Let me help you get connected with your parents. Let me, well, that's the way our hearts ought to be for those who don't know Jesus. One of the problems, though, is that people who are lost often don't know that they're lost. Some of you wives could attest to that. When your husband's driving, he's never lost. It may take him two hours longer to get where he's going, but he's never lost. I'll get there eventually. Now, your attempts to help him understand, um, well, you just quit that 20 years ago, you know, because he doesn't want to hear it. And it's the same way with people who don't know Jesus. If you say you're lost, it's like, hey, wait a minute. You think you're better than I am? I'm a good person. God loves me just like I am. Thank you very much. It's all right. Well, today is the last Sunday of a three-week series about priorities in our lives. 
And we're taking our cue from the most Im- about the most important priorities in life from the great commandment that Jesus gave when a group of religious leaders were asking him questions trying to trick him. Jesus gave two great priorities in life. Love God and love your fellow man. We've broken down that second commandment into two components, which is in fact the same divisions that we've been talking about. One is loving the body, loving those who belong to Jesus, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the other is loving those who are outside the body, those who don't know Jesus. Our text for today is Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. But we'll be looking at other places, particularly in the book of Luke. It just seems like everywhere, I just kept coming back to the book of Luke in preparation for this, this message. So we'll read our text together. Would you please stand? That's our custom here to stand as we read God's word together. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Father, that is a A radical, it's almost a shocking statement. That if we love you with all of our heart and we love our neighbor as ourself, then we understand all of your word. We get it. We're applying it. Lord, we all know that we're incapable of doing that in our own strength. It, it, it's just not going to happen. So, Father, we ask for you to come this morning, and, and, and as we consider this living Word of God, the Spirit of God would move in our hearts and convict us where we are short, as I have been so convicted this week in preparing this message. And encourage us, Lord, that <clears throat> you have designed perfectly for us to keep these commands in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And finding, as we find great help from the body of Christ, those who are around us this morning. So, do all that you want to do in our hearts and minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and be seated. I think we all get the first part of this commandment, that this is the great priority in life, to love the Lord your God. If you believe God exists, you believe that he is the creator of the universe, then we get this part. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We, we owe everything to him, if, if, if indeed this is real. And I would think almost all of us in here believe that it is. We also get the first we also get the part of love your neighbor as yourself when, when it comes to loving those around us, those who are in church with us, those who are very much like us. But are we, in fact, 
called to love and despise, love those who hate us and may even despise us because of our faith in Christ and because of our desire for others to know the way to life? Are we to love those? My goodness, I don't care which side of the political spectrum you're on. Just look at CNN or Fox. We hate each other. We hate each other. What's, what's that about? For Christians, what is that about? We are called to love all people, including those who not only are not like us, but those who despise us. What is so amazing? And, and, and by the way, you know that if you know anything about the New Testament. You know that that's what we're called to do. What is so Amazing about this commandment is that Jesus elevates loving your neighbor as yourself to the same level as loving the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, it's impossible. You cannot truly love your neighbor unless you love God because you don't have the capacity to. It may feel like you do. You may think that you're a very good person. But if you will examine your motives most often what we do for other people has a self-serving component and element in it. We're just that way. It's, it's the way we are. It's because of the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, so many things went down the drain. And no matter how good we clean up and how much perfume we put on, we still are fallen sinners and we seek to promote and to protect and to satisfy ourselves so we don't have the capacity to love others without God's love flowing through us but if you seek to help and if you seek to help others without a love for God most likely in some way you're trying to justify yourself before the Lord it's equally true though that you cannot love God without a subsequent love welling up in your heart for those who, do, who know both those who do know him and those who don't, a, a, a love springing up in your heart for your fellow man. You just can't have one without the other. The order is important, but it's a package deal. The religious leaders were always trying to trick Jesus. And on one occasion, recorded in Luke 10, a lawyer asked Jesus how to inherit eternal life. How, how do I get there, Jesus? You, you seem to be the big religious man. How do I get there? And Jesus answered him with a question, not like he so often did. Well, what do you think? According to the law, what, what's your take? Give it a go. And the lawyer answered in the same way Jesus did in our text. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, maybe he had heard Jesus say that on another occasion. But Jesus affirmed his answer. He said, good, do that and you'll, you'll have eternal life. Because, see, we don't do it apart from coming to Christ. <clears throat> but he wanted to justify himself, the Scripture tells us, as well as trick Jesus. So he said, and who is my neighbor? <clears throat> this lawyer, along with the Pharisees, wanted the special relationship that they enjoyed with God to remain with those who were with them. And Jesus responded by giving them the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to read it, but I, I will summarize it. A Jewish man was traveling the dangerous roads from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. Robbed, beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. 
two very religious people came by and pretended not to see and hurried by. Got out of the way as quickly as they could. You ever done that? I've done it. I pass on by the other side. Well, here comes this Samaritan, this despised Samaritan. The Jews hated Samaritans. They hated them. They mocked them. They called them horrible names. And rather than helping the man, we would have expected this Samaritan to do a little dance and say, Serves you right, you stinking Jew. Instead, he carefully put the man on his animal, donkey probably, took him to a hotel and told the manager there, he said, look, you take care of this guy. And if he incurs any more expenses, I'm giving you this money now. But if he needs more time, I'll be back. And you know I'm good for this money. I will take care of it. See, one of the things that Jesus was communicating here was that a relationship with God has nothing to do with one's race, but it has everything to do with loving God and loving our fellow man. Now, I'm going to qualify that in a little bit. This, this is not a works kind of a thing. You need to understand, especially if you're here for the first time, we are not about working our way to, to, to heaven and getting salvation through our good works. It just is impossible. We'll come back just a little bit later. But, but clearly, evidence of what Jesus has done in our lives is that we love God and that we love our fellow man. The Bible goes further to say that there's absolutely nothing that keeps any human being from God except unbelief. In other words, those who are lost can be found. And God has given us the wonderful privilege of helping those who are lost to find their way to Jesus. Now, I recognize that we don't find Jesus, He finds us. I used to talk in my testimony about this is when I found the Lord. As, I, as time went on and I understood who God is and how He works, I, I changed that testimony to say this is when God found me, when He chased me down. And when he saved me. But in Luke 15, Jesus uses three parables to illustrate God's heart for the lost and his desire for us to have that same heart. You remember what those parables are? Three parables? The sheep, the lost coin, and and the prodigal son. The sheep, if if 99 are are under your care and one has gone missing, what will the shepherd do? He, He leaves the 99 and he goes after that one. A woman who's lost a coin, a tenth of her livelihood, a tenth of all that she owns, one silver coin. You couldn't afford to do that. Look, it's not like us flipping the switch and turning on the light. She had to, she had to, to light the lamp. She had to clean the lamp. And then she had to get oil for it. And she had to light it. And she swept the, that earthen floor. So that, and she listened very carefully trying to find that coin. It was precious to her. And then the prodigal son where... The father waits and is overjoyed when the lost son comes home. Where's our heart? Where's our heart for the lost? Look, football season starts next week. That's all I care about. (laughs) I'd like to see you after the service, Chris. Look, there's Labor Day sales coming up. What more can you ask for in life? 
Our home group is having a wonderful time. We are so tight. Where's our compassion? Where's our heart for the lost? There's a sense of urgency in the Luke 15 parables. Even though we believe that all barriers between men and God are broken down in Jesus, in the craziest ways we end up, even though we're saved, even though we believe in Jesus and all that, we end up just like the Pharisees. And we want to reach out to those who are most like us. Everyone else makes us a little uncomfortable. And the we at Grace Community Church are mostly white, middle-class Americans or those who move quite comfortably in those circles. And that's who we love. But Jesus came for more than our kind. Now look, we don't need to, be, we don't need to feel guilty about who we are. Some of you are walking around with this horrible guilt because you were born in America. Get over it! Don't feel guilty about that. But don't make the mistake that the majority of us, it's only, look on the seesaw, you know, most of us are over here. Three or four of you are out there feeling guilty. Don't feel guilty, but my goodness, the others of us are, are, are just as imbalanced. We think that this is all that God cares about. And missionaries to this day continue to make the mistake of trying to make people American-like before they come to Jesus. Or once they do come to Jesus, now here's the way to do it. It's not that we want to keep anyone out of here. Nor do I detect an ounce of racism in our midst. I really don't. Maybe, maybe you know some racist in the group. I don't. Maybe you'll say something and I'll, oh, yeah. I, we've had some. We have had some racists. And they, and they weren't comfortable here. And they left. But nonetheless, we are comfortable with those who were like us, just like the Pharisees. Didn't anyone want Samaritans? Come on, that proves that you're a fraud. You're speaking good of a Samaritan. What's wrong with you, Jesus? We have to acknowledge, we have to acknowledge that loving our own is far more than just a white American thing. And that's the other thing. If, if, if you're feeling guilty about being American, you probably think we're scum of the earth when it comes to the way that we treat other people. I got to tell you, we're among the best. I've traveled this world. Racism exists everywhere. Hatred, racial and religious hatred exists everywhere. I mean, we, we have only to point to Rwanda. 800,000 to a million people killed in the last 20 years. They hate each other. Tutsis and, and Hutus. Hutus killed Tutsis. And the Tutsis started it. They, they shouldn't have. But boy... Uh, the Hutus finished it and killed what they considered to be inferior people. And, and of course in India where, where Sean uh, Cross, uh, who will be preaching next week and then later uh, toward the end of September while I'm up in the mountains, Sean is, is in a place where the caste system has been outlawed. And nobody ever thinks about classes of society anymore. That's ridiculous. They think about it all the time. In fact, if you were to walk in the shadow of a Dalit, the lowest caste in India, and you were from one of the upper social 
groups, you would run home as fast as you could and shower because you were unclean because you walked in the shadow of a Dalit. What's that about? Now, I get it if you walk in the shadow of a Duke fan. Get home as quickly as you can. (laughs) You know, I said to myself this morning, don't say it, don't say it. but. But you know, Look, we, we don't do that kind of thing. We don't do that kind of thing, but we do, we do sort of look down our noses toward the poor, don't we? And we say, especially, this is America, or we might say, this is America. You can be anything you want to be in this country, son. You just need to pull yourself up. Look, systems work against it as well as individual lack of motivation and that kind of thing. And if you grew up, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, about how difficult it is psychologically to be born in poverty and to live in poverty. But Jesus gave special attention to the poor. It's not that the poor are more naturally, spiritually minded than than the wealthy, but, but they are often more open to the gospel than those who have economic and educational advantages that oddly are assumed to be the result of hard work rather than a gift from God. We think we are who we are because of our determination and our hard work. Really? Who gave you the mind that you have? Why were you born where you were? Or why were the circumstances in place that got you to this place on this day? Who gave you the ability to get out of bed this morning? There are some people who have this great desire to work hard and to make a living and and everything else is against them. Including sometimes the, the inability to just get out of bed. You know, this weekend's hurricane was terrible. Rob reminded me just before I came up here, we need to be praying for the, the people at sea as well as the people on the land. We don't have any idea how much destruction there is. But you know what? And look, we just dodged it. We, last year, the tornadoes were hidden right for Fuquay, and they turned. Um. Some of you know people that were devastated in that. But you know what? We're going to rebuild. We're going to... Most anybody who had damage yesterday, most of the people, at least most of the people like us, had insurance. And people are going to rush to help them rebuild. And I suppose that if, if those people were given a choice, you want to stay here in America and rebuild or you want to move to Somalia, where 12.4 million people are affected by that famine. Who knows how many of them are going to die today? Today. Because of starvation. You know what? When I see those pictures on television, you know what I want to do? Cut it off quick. I I don't, but I want to. I, I don't want that to invade my space of peace and well-being, my sense of well-being. 
In no way am I making light of what happened in North Carolina yesterday. In fact, people say, well, I feel guilty about this because I say, look, this is your context. And when you lose your job, it's devastating to you. When relationships are broken, it's devastating to you. And does it compare to the people who are dying in Somalia? No, but this is your context. Don't feel guilty about it. It's okay. Just be aware of what else is going on in the world. When we really think about what life is like for all the people of the world, we recognize that the material blessings we enjoy are a gift, not something that we've earned. When you stop and think about it long enough, it's the same way with salvation. It's not something we earn. It's a gift of grace that was given to us by God. Jesus came to this earth. Well, why did Jesus come to this earth? I mean, he gives a a number of answers. I mean, we've already looked at Luke 19.10 where he said he came to seek and to save the lost. And while most of the religious leaders and those in the higher strata of society rejected Jesus. Most of them did. Not all of them. Most of them did. The the sick and the poor flocked to Jesus. And that happened at a time when any serious student of the Old Testament should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah who had been prophesied in Isaiah 61. (laughs) In fact, toward the beginning of his ministry, Jesus gathered what came to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And they handed him the scroll from Isaiah. They said, we've heard Jesus. We've heard that you've got this ministry going on. How about reading for us today? And they handed him the scroll of Isaiah, and he found the place in Isaiah 61. And here's what he said. Let's read what happened, in, in, starting in, in Luke 4, 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him, or fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They didn't like it. Tried to kill him, in fact, after that. Jesus frequently rebuked the religious leaders for not recognizing him by the miracles that he performed. And the gospel that he spoke preached especially for and to the poor. In fact, when he said, this is it, I'm, basically he was saying, I am the Messiah you've been looking for. They ran him out of town, tried to throw him over a cliff. But didn't Jesus do all of the things prophesied here? Didn't he? Didn't he fulfill Isaiah 61? In fact, when John the Baptist was... John the Baptist, just like everybody else, expected a a physical kingdom. They expected a military 
overthrow of, of Rome and for Jesus to set up on the throne, that's what they were looking for. Even John the Baptist who had said, make way for the, for the servant of the Lord. He is the one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Probably didn't know what he was saying there. But even when John the Baptist towards the end was in prison and he thought, somehow, this is not like I thought it was going to be. I, I must have missed it. He sent people to, to, to ask Jesus, are you the one or do we look for someone else? Jesus didn't say, you go back and tell John the Baptist to mind his own business. Or, or you go back and tell, that he, he, don't be wimp out when you get in trouble. You just believe. He went about doing all the things that had been prophesied about him in Isaiah 61. And this is what Jesus said. Go and tell John that you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. At the end, he did say, John, buck up, buddy, believe. But here's some basis for your belief. I've fulfilled the prophecies of Isaiah 61. So what does this have to do with us? I mean, are we supposed to raise the dead and Heal the blind and the lame? Well, not exactly, but we're certainly called to do more than most of us are doing, at least most of us from my generation. My generation is all about sharing the gospel, but we're very, very careful about avoiding what we knew in earlier days to be a social gospel. The idea that you were saved by helping save other people out of their poverty. Now, listen, this was very much in vogue in the 60s and the 70s when I first got saved in the early 1970s. But it had really been something. At least our elders tell us it was really something around the turn of the century, around the turn of the, the 20th century. And we don't want to make that same mistake that, that we begin to think that what we're doing is the basis of our salvation and the salvation for others. I'm afraid that many in the emergent church movement are making that very mistake. Hoping, in fact, to usher in the kingdom of God by helping people rise out of poverty. But the truth of Jesus' words in the first century are just as real in the 21st century and will be until he returns. The poor will always be with you. When you read Jesus saying what he said, it almost sounds callous. A lady took a year's salary on this oil that was used for the most special of occasions, especially for, for, for preparing a body for, for burial, and poured it on Jesus. And Judas, who was really a thief, said, we could have used this for the poor. And Jesus just dismissed him out of hand and said, the poor's go poor are always going to be with you. She's doing a good thing. It's just not as easy as we want it to be to make sense of what's expected of us. And Christ followers from my generation get that, that the poor are going to always be here. And in some ways, we've given up on helping them because it seems like you can never do enough. And those who live in poverty rarely rise out of it. And we can't understand that because we were told all of our lives, you can do anything you want to do. And just think about the thousands of dollars many of your parents are paying for you to be in school. 
We've had every advantage possible so we don't get poor people that don't care enough about, don't have enough self-dignity to rise out of that thing. But when we say things that are true, such as, it does no good to feed someone unless you share the gospel, those of you who are under, say, 35 may think that that doesn't pass the smell test. And you're right. Sort of. Those of us over, say, 40 are suspicious that those of you who are younger tend to care more about ministering to people's physical needs to their spiritual. In fact, you minister physically to the neglect of the spiritual. And there may be some truth in that as well. Even if you are absolutely intent on preaching the gospel, history shows us all too well that when we put a great emphasis on ministering to men's physical needs, the tendency is to, is to slide slowly and then very quickly, in some cases, to a social gospel. Jesus came, though, did he not, to minister to the whole person. Not only did he restore sight to the blind and cause the lame to walk, but he preached the gospel. Jesus' death on the cross is the crux or the center of the gospel. Just think about the, the, the definition of propitiation that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross appeased the wrath of God that was directed not only towards sin but against sinners. And that includes every one of us, rich and poor, hungry and well-fed, healthy and weak and sick. We can go so far as to say that Jesus' sacrifice exhausted the wrath of God against us. It's ludicrous to say that Jesus came only to help those who are less fortunate than we. Helping the poor was, however, part of Jesus' ministry, and it was the part by which he was supposed to be recognized. God had designed that you recognize the Savior because of the way that he reaches out to those who are desperately in need. As it was in Jesus' day, when poor people responded to Jesus' ministry far more readily than the wealthy, so it often is the case today. When we help others, when we help others in Jesus' name, their eyes are often open to Christ. When we help them in order to feel better about ourselves, we're, just, we're back to the Pharisees. We're just like them. We just do good things so that we can feel good about ourselves and maybe if I do enough good things, God will accept me and I'll, I'll be saved. I mean, you know, these people, <laughs> they're not as good as I am, but I certainly want to help them. If you, if you say, those are not my motives at all, you just wait till you need help. And you see how you feel about it when other people start to help you. I, chances are the pride is going to well up in you and say, or you're going to feel just devastated, or you're going to be so proud you won't even receive help. We're complicated human beings. I mean, there's a lot going on inside of us. And so it's very easy for us to want to help others rather than um, certainly we don't want to have to be helped. So, when we consider the conflict between 
the generations about social justice and mercy type ministries. We have a lot to learn from each other. In fact, in fact, I, I don't I, I don't remember a time in the church, not from my earliest days, I don't remember a time when the generations are suspicious of each other at the level that we are today. And we desperately need each other. I confess, my generation cares too little about the physical needs of people. I confess that. I have been so convicted this week as I read a book that I'm going to point to in just a moment. I, 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 in fact, even as I preach this, I, I'm almost feeling like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want to sound like I'm making the case for my side. I recognize that my generation has done too little. I also recognize, look, in the 1960s, I was a part of that. I was as much of, I was a hippie. As much as you can be a hippie and live at home, that's who I was. I was saved one month before I got out of high school. And I want to tell you, I despised authority. I didn't know why, I just did, you know. It's just, and, and, and my, my rebellion against authority was like this. It was all of us. It was like this. Who are you? you? You can't order me around like you do. Down with authority. Well, there is in our day, I, at least this is my sense, just as much a disregard for authority, but it looks a lot different. Today it looks like this. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. You know, which, you know, being interpreted means, you got nothing to say to me, old man. You know what's different about now in the 60s? In the 60s, you didn't have that rebellion against authority in the church. You had it outside the church, but you didn't have it in the church. Now there's a lot of that going on. And I got to tell you, I've been, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an observer of these types of things. I, I think on... Well, I, I like to think I think on a large scale. It might be, you know, I might be kidding myself. It, to which many of you might be saying, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no matter what your age, you might be saying it. But, but I've seen, I mean, I mean, I've been to conference after conference where, you know, th- the oldest guy on the stage is a, is a drummer, you know, and he's about 40. And the rest are like 30-year-old pastors telling guys my age and older how to do church. And there's something a little bit wrong with that. Now, it's not entirely wrong, but there's something. We need each other because I'm telling you, two years ago, two years ago, for the first time in my life, I felt old. I felt like somehow I I was not in touch with the younger generation for the first time in my life. But there are things that we've seen that you need to know if you're younger. So let's find a way to talk. And I've begun to see a shift in those 30-year-old pastors who are now 35 and 36 and 7. I've begun to see a shift in their thinking. And it's not, oh, wow. I mean, who would have ever thought Mark Driscoll would be old school? But he's, he's moving in that direction, you know? Just because it's the way it happens. Well, fortunately... There's an excellent book to help us about all these things that we've been talking about, Loving the Lost. It's written by two professors from Covenant College, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickard. If you have a pen, please get it out and write this down. 
please. I would say that you have to read this book, but I won't say that because I'm afraid that you wouldn't simply because I ordered you to, you know, that authority thing. So let me plead with you to read this book. I cannot think of one single Christ follower in this church, in this room, that doesn't need to read this book. And if you're not sure about it still, if you need further reference, read Kevin DeYoung's glowing reference of this book. And with that, we are flat out of time. And I have at least three weeks worth of material to present at this stage. So let's keep going for, well, I don't have the time to do it. So I'm going to briefly run through a list of observations. Some of these have context in what we've been talking about. Some of them have were, were stuff I had planned to get to. I, I, I had intentions of going an entirely different way before I started reading When Helping Hurts. And so I've prepared a handout that the deacons are going to give, pass out now. I don't know that we've got enough to go around, but maybe one per couple. Uh, and you can have every child in your family can have one because they don't, you know, you guys don't communicate all that well. And, and I want to make sure that they get it too. It's just so awesome that these guys sit on the front row. I think when every, row, every seat on the front row is filled, Jesus is coming back that day. <laughs> maybe before the service is over. It's a sign. Well, I just want to look at this for just a moment. Now, we're going to come back to a lot of this stuff in our next sermon series, which is called the 29th chapter. This past year, we looked at the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, and we, and we saw the church in God's story, his story of, 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 of creation, God, the story of God's creation, the fall of man and redemption, and then we're pushing for the day of restoration. But I got to tell you, this is something you have to understand, and I'll talk with you about it. If you're young, you may be thinking that restoration is coming before Jesus comes back. It's not going to happen. It just ain't going to happen. But this year, we're going we're gonna to think about our place in God's story. And if you're a student who chooses to attend Grace, then you are very much a part of God's story at this church while you're here. And if it, this series should be very helpful for you also as you think about finding your place in God's story somewhere else when you go on and leave this, the great metropolis of Bowie's Creek and find a church where you want to grow and serve in God's story. For now, here are these thoughts about loving the lost. <clears throat> and, and you may just want to look up some of this scripture and just meditate on this this week or next week or two. And if you're home group leaders, you talk about this tonight, this week, whenever you meet. The world is divided, first of all, into two categories, lost and found. It, it, that's it. It's not any of the, it's lost and found. We have to recognize that at the very outset. That's the foundation of everything else. Second, regardless of one's economic and social standing, he or she needs the gospel more than anything else. Mark 8, 36 to 37. Third, the, the fall of man has distorted God's design for his creation. Poverty and suffering are devastating results. And don't you know that Satan is all about poverty and suffering? He hates people. He doesn't want them to rise out of their place. 
Fourth, God designed for the Messiah to be known by his tender love and care for the poor and sick, which included the preaching of the life-changing gospel. Go back and look at Isaiah 61 before you look at Luke 4. The Good Samaritan was not a part of a short-term mission, mission project or mission trip. But he helped when he encountered need. wonder how many of us who are all about short-term mission trips just ride right on by when we see something, somebody who is in need of help. 